Happy New Year, and welcome to another episode of Backlash Podcast. This week, we're going to talk to Jason Sloan with Badfish Outdoors. And for those of you that don't know, Badfish Outdoors was like the OG of musky filming back in the day when things were still on DVD. They used to put out some pretty cool, you know, say raw content. It was just, it kind of uh, blazed the trail, in my opinion, on, you know, what you see today on YouTube. So we're going to talk to Jason. Uh, very cool stuff. And, you know, we'll we'll uh, kind of break down the whole bad fish uh, uh, history, so to speak, and we'll go that route. But first off, we want to thank you all for coming back for another episode, and hope everybody had uh, a happy holiday season, whether it be Christmas time or New Year's, and now we're ready to get back, and we're going to talk about um, a few things we got going on with Musky Mayhem this week. I know there's a, a few things, a new TV show that's starting this week, and what else are we going to do? We're going to talk about the Chicago Muskie show briefly. So we're going to be there on the 20th, 21st, and 22nd of January. Mark your calendars. Show season's here. Now that we're through the holidays, it's time to start uh, getting ready for that. Brad, you guys got all your show season stuff ready to roll? Well, I wish I could say yes, Jeff, but not quite. Um, we're getting close, though. You know, typically we would be leaving uh, this Wednesday or Thursday to get to the show, so it kind of feels good that we got a couple extra weeks this year. Yeah, absolutely. I'm definitely happy that we do. I know that I probably need it, although our show prep came together pretty quick. I mean, over the past week we got, I'd say we're probably 80% done. We're still actually waiting for some new products to come in so we can get those to the show. Speaking of new products, spread. you know, there's been an exciting uh, new product added from Musky Mayhem Tackle. I know that you guys have them on your website, and we have them on our website. So speaking of websites, if you're looking for gear, and in this case, if you're looking for a new Musky Mayhem product, why don't you check out TeamRhinoOutdoors.com, or like I said, you can also go visit MuskyMayhemTackle.com. But Brad, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so last year we came up with the grenade. Basically... It is a forward heavy uh, blade bait, the, and the blades are on the tail. And so this year, what we're doing is we're just kind of doing the baby brother, if you will, of that bait. It's going to be called the mini grenade. Um, it ends up being about 10 and a half inches long. It's 4.5 ounces heavy. We put two four-aught hooks on it, two number seven blades out the tail. And it can be used just like a regular grenade, but it's going to be a little bit smaller, a little bit easier to handle. Very effective, whether you're uh, fishing deeper water, deeper weed lines, or if you want to just get in the shallow water and just kind of burn it right through those weeds. But night fishing was incredible. I think you'll see that on Mayhem's 10,000 casts this year. The other part that I can tell you is that it drops one foot per second. And because of that drop, if on a moderate retrieve, it'll stay in that same counted down uh, depth, if you will. So you count to 10. A moderate retrieve, you're going to stay around in that 10 foot of water column. So super handy that it's uh, it drops a foot per second. Very effective tool. Definitely something people want to check out and add to their arsenal this year. You know, Brad, one question I've had on it so far is, is this a jig? And why don't you answer that question? No, it is not a jig. And the reason it's not a jig is because of how forward heavy this bait is. It's going to fall really fast forward. And if you're going to let it do that, you're going to end up having some issues with hooks, you know, hooking up to your line or your leader. So vertically, not so much, but you can yo-yo it all the way back in. And, and a lot of guys are doing that. It's not uh, that vertical style, I guess I would say. The one thing that's really cool about it, too, is how well we've done with it um, in the fall fishing. If you think about it, nobody really throws blades in the fall. And it's not a traditional blade bait. So. It definitely has been very effective at that time of the year when fish aren't used to seeing that type of bait. So if you're looking to get your hands on a new mini grenade, I know that Musky Mayhem will have them at a show. We will likely have them in our booth in a show, but you can also get them now at muskymayhemtackle.com or you can go to teamrhinooutdoors.com and you'll find them both there. Now, Brad, moving on, this weekend we also have the debut of, we'll call it season two, but this is going to be like your first full season of Mayhem's 10,000 casts. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we're super excited. Both Chase and I, um, we host the TV show called Mayhem's 10,000 casts. It airs live on KOTV channel at 8 a.m. on Saturdays. The first Saturday this season will be January 7th. So here in about three days, it will go live at 8 a.m. on KOTV. 
it will also be followed up by 9 a.m. on YouTube. Also, with KOTV, the uh, streaming feature kind of ends up happening sometimes Sunday evening or Monday morning, and then you can go back there and stream it as well. We have 12 episodes this coming season, kind of a, an array of different types of shows, the transitions that kind of happen throughout the whole season, starting from early preseason for us Midwesterners. We were down south. We did some fishing down there. You'll see that in the first first two episodes where we're south and we kind of followed it all the way up through the north and back down to the south again Jeff. so super excited about it i think uh, there was some large improvements from last year's five pilot episodes i'm excited to see what everybody thinks oh and brad so you know if people are looking to check this out kotv and youtube are your two options to go check this out that is correct the neat thing about kotv's network if you're not on it, you should be. I mean, it's super, super cool because there's a lot of different shows that are out there and available. Not only Keys Outdoors and, and Mayhem's 10,000 Casts, but Larry Smith Outdoors. Um, the Linders have a show on there. Uh, Sportsman's Journal, uh, trying to remember all the different names. Gillespie. There's a bunch of different ones available on the network. And there is live programming, but there's also streaming. So... It gives you a couple different options. And people that don't know what a Roku is, there's some smart TVs out there that are Roku compatible. And if you don't have one of those TVs, it's really simple. You can just go to Walmart. It's like 25 bucks, I think, for a box, Jeff. Am I right about that? Yeah, I think it's somewhere in there. I actually have a Roku TV in my, let's see what I got. I got my living room and my bedroom, so I just watch it on that. Right. Well, if you don't have that Roku TV, the little box for minimal dollars, Plug it in, hook it up to your Wi-Fi. You're going to have to do a search, look for KOTV Network, download that app, and you're ready to go. It's all free. So that's the beauty of that. And you can enjoy fishing shows. And uh, I think there's even maybe a couple hunting shows on there now um, that uh, you're not going to maybe see somewhere else. And it's all free. I also think that if you want to, you can just dial it up on your phone by go to like kotvchannel.com or something like that. I don't exactly know the website, but you can do it that way and go to uh, live stream or whatever it says right there. I don't know if you can, I'm assuming you can do the same kind of thing. You can buy things on demand. So if you want to check it out, there's multiple ways you can get uh, KOTV. So Brad, moving on, last thing we got to talk about before we get into our conversation with Jason is... This week, uh, Thursday, you know, you're going to hear this, this podcast comes out on Wednesday. So if you're listening in the first couple of days, you guys have a Facebook Live event going on too. That's correct. Chase and I decided that uh, we're going to do a Mayhem's 10,000 cast Facebook Live. Uh, basically a Q&A and any other things that uh, somebody wants to ask us. So it should be interesting. We'll, we'll be talking about what we're going to see this season on the TV show, as well as answering any questions that uh, somebody might have, whether it be just fishing or filming or about the upcoming show. So should be exciting. It'll be 7 p.m. Central. You can go check out our social platform and find out more details. But Thursday night, it'll be the January 5th, Thursday night, 7 p.m. Central. So, Brad, one quick clarification. Is this going to be on your Musky Mayhem Tackle Facebook page, or is it on the Mayhem's 10,000 Cast Facebook page? It'll be on the Mayhem's 10,000 Cast. Well, I think that wraps it up. Let's go dial up our conversation with Jason Sloan with Badfish Outdoors. All right, our guest today is none other than Jason Sloan. And, Jason, you may know him from Badfish Outdoors. And, you know, many musky anglers like myself are anxiously awaiting. I don't know that there ever will be another video from them because videos are kind of, you know, gone. But uh, still awesome stuff. I mean, they took, you know, musky fishing videos to another level. Jason, thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule. We really, we really appreciate you, you know, coming to talk with us. Well, I'm real happy to be here. I appreciate you guys asking me to come on. And, you know, Jason, I actually should mention that you do have a podcast as well, which I don't know. Do you still put out many episodes of that? It was like the Jason Sloan radio show, I believe. Yeah, working on some stuff there. Hopefully we'll be back up and running soon. All right, so Jason, yeah, we're looking forward to uh, you getting back up and running with your podcast. I know it was one of the few that I that I enjoyed. 
let's talk about you know your history. We've never had you on the podcast. Some of our listeners may not be familiar with you because uh, I don't know I'm, how long has it been since you guys put out a DVD. Anyways, um, I'm trying to remember here. It's been a while. Maybe I'm thinking uh, twelve years, fourteen years, somewhere in that range. Yeah, so, I mean, it's been a while, which means that if you're newer to muskie angling, they might not even sadly know what bad fish outdoors even is, which is, that's tragic for guys like me and Brad. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, uh, growing up in northern Wisconsin, lived out in the sticks, was uh, lucky that way. My uh, grandparents had moved up here from Chicago. My uh, grandpa was a World War II vet, and he had owned a bar in Chicago, and they uh, swapped it out for a resort in northern Wisconsin in 1952, which was previously a little logging camp. So I grew up there kind of taking guests out uh, fishing bass. It was just a little uh, bass and bluegill lake. And then moved on. And when I got into high school, I started working for Greg Bone, who was a well-known walleye guide and muskie guide in northern Wisconsin. I started working for him and did the walleye thing. was uh, competitive in walleye tournaments, actually, during my high school years. And then kind of got turned down to the muskie thing. Uh, kind of the big game hunting of um, of the uh, fishing world and all that. And that was during the time when there was the back trolling controversy up here and all of that. And that's another whole story onto it itself. But then, and we we're always messing around with little camcorders and that kind of thing when we were kids. And then a little bit later on, uh, figured that maybe somebody might like to watch us musky fish. And I thought I was in with some characters, you know, uh, Mark Lejewski and, uh, Gordy Hostrider that were um, winning all all of these uh, tournaments, and so I thought that I had some good ideas on how to maybe make a creative take on uh, the musky stuff because at the time, you know, we had Bob Mesa Comer, you had Joe Booker, you had Jim Sarek. Um, that was about the only videos out there, and I thought we might take it in a different direction. And you certainly did that. There's no doubt about that. You know. Talking about the cast of characters, I mean, you if people want to look back on some of them, you had, I think, Spencer Berman on there when he was probably, like, what, 10 years old, 12 years old, something like that? <laughs> I think maybe he was 14, but... Uh... <laughs> Either way, th- you know, things have definitely changed, and he's he's taken off in musky fishing. You know, do you still keep in touch with most of those guys? Yeah, I actually do, and it was nice. I was able to see Brad at the Milwaukee... Muskie Expo um, last year, and I haven't seen him in a while. I dropped in on him one time, just showed up when I was covering the, when the uh, PMT was on Miltona, but I uh, keep in touch here and there, like with uh, Senate and uh, Greg, and I, I, I did a show with Chad Kane, but that was one of the, of the dynamics I wanted to bring to those videos was, I mean, nobody had done it, and, you know, a Joe Booker video was about Joe Booker, and a Bob Mesa Comer video, same thing, and more power to him, but I thought that if someone wanted to watch and learn about muskie fishing in Kentucky, why would they want to listen to Mark or Gory talk about it? Why wouldn't you rather have Greg Thomas and Tony Grant walk you through fishing down there and then everybody's a winner? Maybe I put some more people on their uh, guide sheets and, you know, then they watch our uh, video because I've got local experts. And that was one of the things that, that had never been done. I found it more interesting and um, I mean, all musky fishermen have egos, but I don't know. I just thought that it would be better to have the local expert lead us through that. Yeah. I can, I can first remember when the first videos came out, Jason, it was incredible that the different characters that you actually had on that, on the video series definitely got me charged up. And I'll, I'll tell you this, uh, you filmed with me as well. I still go back and watch the old musky town once in a while, just because, uh, I think you you even changed it up even more. You lifted the game again by doing it in a, in a different scenario. Yeah, and the Musky Town, like I said, was my favorite one. And I actually I watched a documentary. I got home one night late, and I turned on PBS, and there was a you know, just flipping through channels, and there was a, a show on called Oki Noodling, and it was a documentary that they had shot down there doing the catfish noodling. And I really liked the style of that video. And it was obviously on uh, PBS. And I wrote the number down and I called the producer the next day because I wanted to order one of those DVDs. And he's like, oh, they got them at Best Buy. So I went to Best Buy in Appleton. I was living in Oshkosh at the time. And uh, 
went over there and grabbed that. And there was another reason for that too. Um, this wasn't, I'm trying to think it was VHS tapes, trying to think of the year, maybe well, mid nineties. There was these VHS videos that were called the old masters of musky fishing. And the only way you could get them was to, on PBS, make a donation. You couldn't even buy these. I called up and made a donation and got these videos. And it was interviewing the guys like Ray Kennedy and uh, Buckshot Anderson and some of these old time guys. There wasn't a musky caught on the whole video. It was these old guys telling stories. And my God, if any of you guys can find those videos, um, extremely interesting and extremely entertaining. But that whole interview part of it, and it's funny now, Brad, when I go back and watch those, how blurry the footage looks because we were, I mean, that was at the tail end of standard definition. <laughs> I think some of those are available on YouTube, actually. I think I ran into that last winter, Jason. Really? Oh, wow. Um, I, <laughs> that's the last place I would have searched. Yeah, that's, that's some really, really cool stuff, actually. There's, uh, there's a couple different ones. Now, I, I can't remember. It's been almost a year since I looked at it. I'm not even exactly sure what you'd search. Right, yeah. These were, the name was The Old Masters of Musky Fishing, and there was two of them. And they had um, Ray Kennedy, who was my uh, great uncle was going through his old uh, drawers in the garage of all the old um, reels he had. He uh, saved them up to use them as parts, the old um, flugers and, and uh, that kind of thing. They call them the uh, knuckle busters. You cast them, and if you backlash that, there, that handle would spin. And if you backlash bad enough, it launched the whole rod out of your hand if you weren't paying attention. But good stuff. Brad, I think I remember you sending me links to that. I think you texted them to me or something like that. I remember seeing something about that last winter. Yeah, I thought it was super, super intriguing. I mean, I, I know exactly where Jason's mind was when he decided to do Musky Town because of that, because of those videos. No, uh, some of those guys had stories where, you know, up here was a big deal. It was a different culture than uh, Minnesota as far as there was a lot of history of the catch and kill and those tournaments you brought or, or not tournaments, but the year-long contest, I, I should call them. And there was some cash involved, um, not quite like, you know, the Art Lawton stuff out east, but where they made money off these fish. And a lot of times, I forget who, who um, made the comment on that video. Um, I'm uh, kind of blurry on the names now, but he said, if you weren't coming in with the fish at the end of the day, you weren't probably going out guiding the next day because they went and gave the job to the guys that were, getting fished, but there was the one story I think it was Dick Slate was talking about how he brought in this big fish and he didn't want anybody to know where he was uh, fishing so he went and backed his two-wheel drive uh, rig down into a river landing and got stuck on purpose and then went and got the bartender from town that had the four-wheel drive to come pull him out and he's got this giant fish in the boat because then he was going to tell everybody in town that he caught the fish on this little river when it was nowhere near where he caught it but uh, some of that part of the musky culture, I really hope doesn't get lost. And if those videos are on YouTube, that's great to kind of preserve that and maybe pass that on. Yeah, absolutely, Jason. So talking about culture, I mean, you did film all over the place. Can you kind of fill us yeah. in on some of the culture that you see? Yeah, it was, boy, uh, Kentucky, where the guy told me stories about driving up to a little feeder creek and shooting the muskies with shotguns. You know, when you went back to some of the, where it was a food fish here. And uh, that's one of those things that it's an unpopular thing, but um, we ate uh, muskie when we were growing up. It wasn't like you uh, killed one every time you were out, but, you know, once or twice a summer, you got one of those right nails at 33 inches. You uh, brought them out to the resort for a cookout, and I miss those days. Those, it was fantastic eating. And of course, now with a, I think it's basically a 45 inch size limit across the board. Obviously, that's not something you can, do anymore but um you know that who would i written to i i wrote to one of the guys that in fisherman when i was a kid and it was they had a contest between cass county and violets county and i wanted the records on that just out of curiosity and he said that the cast he didn't have the exact records i i had written to jim linder i forget who answered me but it wasn't jim anyway uh that uh, cass lake had averaged much or a much nicer average size versus the Vilas County had the numbers, which didn't surprise me at all. But uh, yeah, the culture between that with uh, uh, Minnesota, you can go into the walleyes, everything where it's um, windy rigs and that, where here it's um, flip bobbers all the way from our live bait uh, history here and the trolling over in uh, Minnesota and 
what was that uh, bucktail back in the day? Um, I kind of think uh, the Mark Wendell. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I had a red article one time where I can't remember who it was, but they have that tiller motor back throw and, and they pulled that, that tiller in uh, between their knees and steer the boat while they were casting uh, back before the days of the uh, foot control trolling motors. But yeah, it goes back here a long time. And um, we were just actually doing a remodel down at uh, Bazaki's here working with my brother. And they've got all the old photos up with some of my um, uncles up there. But they've got the big table with everybody standing around with that big, that big musky, you know, with all these orange slices on it. Or I think they're orange slices. They're darker than a lemon. I, mean, I don't know. But anyway, I mean, just looking at the way it was a food fish, and obviously you didn't need the fraction of the pressure as you do now that obviously couldn't sustain that type of thing. Hey, Jason, let's talk a little bit. Of, you mentioned back trolling, and you mentioned trolling. I know in some of your videos you guys did a little bit of roll trolling. Is that something you still do up there? Uh, no, I, I don't do any roll trolling anymore. The only reason we roll trolled was because the motor trolling was illegal. And now that we're able to motor troll, although it's only it's uh, one line, and a max of uh, three per boat. And, yeah, the road trolling, yeah, I mean, that was a lot of fun when we were doing it. We caught a lot of fish because um, a lot of people weren't willing to do it. And the number, and that's another thing I saw change over the years where when we started doing that, when they banned it, and I for, uh, forgive me for forgetting the year, but it was late 90s when they banned it, mid-late 90s, and we put uh, two sets of oars on the Ranger 680s and go upwind and come down. No one was doing it. And yeah, we pounded them and how in those days you would get one big walleye for every, say, 10 muskies you got. And that changed over the years where it got to the point where we were getting more big walleyes on those muskie baits than we were uh, muskies. And that's, I don't know if that's just an overall sign of what the muskie numbers are, how they're uh, like um, a trending. And we can argue global warming back and forth all day, but man, we're not seeing the numbers of Cisco's. And those, um, and I'm going to botch the scientific names. So I won't even attempt it, but those deep water, uh, forays like your whitefish and your Cisco's, we're just not seeing the numbers of those anymore. And I don't know if that's why the trolling, they were all upset and worried that legalizing motor trolling here was going to destroy the fishery. And you go out, I fish all summer here. There's, you rarely see anybody trolling, um, just because I think they're more effective casting. That's one thing I was going to say. I w there was always that concern about the trolling and, and, you know, I still don't see very many people up north doing it. And I spend, yeah, I would say, a fair amount of time on the water. If I'm not fishing, my kids got me in a pontoon boat, you know, cruising around with them. They want to go swimming and stuff, and I'm still paying attention. And it doesn't seem like it's a very big thing. It hasn't really caught on, I don't feel. No, and, it, you know, I work the NWT circuit, the National Wally Tour. I do uh, photography for them, and I would like to see some of those guys. I've got to be uh, friends with, you know, the likes of Gary Parsons and uh, Jason Shakur and Corey Springle and our old friend Drake Hurd. And uh, I would like to get some of those guys that really are professional walleye trolling machines to come over here. I mean, and uh, try it out here and see what those guys could come up with. Because um, if there is a suspended bite, if, if you're getting big walleyes, the muskies are going to be there. They're always in the same place. Um, generally speaking, if you're getting big walleyes trolling, them, at least here, you're going to have uh, muskies around that area as well. Yeah, jumping back to the road trolling part of it, I wasn't sure if maybe you would still do it based on, you know, like, it's, first off, you could still run three lines doing it, and second of all, it's, it, it you know, presents those baits in a completely different way from motor trolling. Yes, it does, and that's something, you know, I did talk, I think it was Russ Smith that told me that we're, when they had a big fish uh, located, they would pull up a ways away and roll up to the spot to fish that or to target that fish. And um, if that wouldn't have an effect on these deeper water you know, fish too, just that uh, silent and that how the boat moves on the rowing compared to that steady, if you're going to boost the motor every five seconds versus, you know, that ebb and flow that you get with the row trolling. And I always thought, and I never tried this, I maybe shouldn't say this idea, but, hanging an offshore clip when those OR-12 off of the oar and then having that line through that. And as you roll, that, that bait moves six feet forward and drops six feet back. As you roll, if something hit it, it would uh, tear it out of that uh, clip. Often thought of doing that, but other things got in the way of... <laughs> That's pretty awesome. You know, it's it's 
amazing with all the different people we talked to on the podcast, like different things that people think about. I have never once thought about hanging a uh, bait off off an oar, but I bet you it would be effective. Well, we would come over a bar. I mean, we were doing this, and I'm sure the motorcycle guys do this as well, but, you know, you come over a bar or a hump or something, and you make a sharp turn and just wail on those oars. And so that outside board was speeding up, and then you'd quick change. And, you know, this is <laughs> the funny talking about doing this uh, rowing. And, man, we'd get uh, consistently higher numbers of hits doing that kind of thing and just that straight. And I mean, that's a motor trolling air casting thing. You get um, change speeds and whatnot, but I won't say a name, but I'm sure both of you probably know who, who did this, but, and maybe I've said it on the podcast in the past, but one of the things, you know, trolling in Northern Wisconsin, when they did allow, and I don't remember what years these were, and you guys could probably help me with it, but you could do uh, no forward trolling, but you could back troll for a time period. Correct. Yep, uh, and uh, that's what I was talking about when I said they banned it. We had back trolling from the late 80s until, I can't remember if it was 94 or 95, about that time period. Right. So uh, a really good guide, and uh, this is what you guys will probably know who it is when I say this, but the rest of the listeners don't need to know a name. A story that I was told, uh, one of these really good guides basically decided just changed his lights so he could night troll, but he'd go forward. And I go, why, why'd you do that? And he said, plain and simple. He goes, I didn't want to uh, smell that exhaust all day trolling. So I do it after dark, flip flop his lights so that the, the bow light was in the stern and the stern light was in the bow. And then he could forward troll. Well, there you go. And that's, uh, I probably know who, who you're talking about, but I had, I had not heard that, that story before. Um, I know that, a lot of the guys said, you know, all the people that are against this back trolling don't need to worry because we're all going to be dead from breathing these fumes after a few years. And, and they had to have the wave whackers and they wore their rain gear even when it was sunny out. And, uh, yeah, so you could back troll. What a stupid, I mean, add it to the list over here of things that, you know, didn't make sense or don't make sense. That's uh, pretty creative thinking. Uh, you know, you were just saying, Jeff, what uh, people think about in the boat, and that's what popped yeah. into my mind. Yeah, that's actually really good. Hey, Jason, you know, we kind of uh, jumped ahead a little bit and we're talking, you know, tactics. Let's talk a little bit more about the bad fish stuff and, and you know, how you went about it. Because back in the day, not only did you need to, you know, film all the content, which is, I'm sure, far more difficult than it was in today. You needed to edit it, which I would assume is also more difficult. And then, like, you needed a way to distribute it because it wasn't as easy as just, you know, uploading a video to YouTube and, and being out there right away. You want to talk about the process of that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, I can talk about that. We, you know, we came into a time period or a timing where I think most of the guys like Mesa Comer and them, they were shooting on beta cam. And those were, we always call them TV cameras, the big the bulky uh, dinosaurs that the guys shot with and you can see them it almost looks like a modern news camera if they ever have a behind the scenes thing with a uh a, a news gathering but um you know that canon xl1 came out and uh at the time with the editing um a lot of guys had this they could not edit on their own because they were editing on these avid machines which were 50 or sixty thousand dollar machines i believe and um so you had to um, shift your uh, footage in to be edited we were able, that was the start of the Macintosh, the uh, Apple, where we got the Final Cut Pro. I believe we got the editing system, and we were very excited to have 120 gigs of memory. At the time, was uh, mind-blowing on that. And now you've got that on something the size of a of, uh, the head of a pencil. You can have that much memory. But anyway, that system, camera and editing system and software, I believe was ten grand. Yeah, eight to ten grand at the time, which is still very um, expensive for us. And uh, Mark and Gordy work in a very successful construction business where they paid the bills and I did the work. So it all worked out. Because we didn't, I mean, at the end of the day, we never made a dime at that stuff. Uh, those guys funded it and I donated my time. But anyway, yeah, that shooting, there was no GoPros or anything. It, it, I mean, that was live shooting and that was kind of. I mean, when Brad started doing his uh, video stuff, it was the same thing. Somebody had to sit there with a camera, and that was where a lot of guys we knew saw our first video and said, well, we're buying a camera and doing this too. 
because we're seeing a lot of cool stuff. And then they bought the camera and realized that nobody wanted to set down their fishing rod all day and sit there with the camera. And I always hated it when we were on a top of the bite. I despise that because I had to film every freaking cast where a, a, they had deep water hit. You know, you get that deep water hit, boom, it's on. I turn the camera on. Okay, hook set again. Boom. All right, got him on. We could kind of cover for some of that. And I didn't feel bad about a stage hit because it wasn't like he was casting at nothing and looking a log and acting like he had a fish. This was, I mean, I had the camera on three or four seconds after the fifth hit. So it was still basically live, but man, I hated that top water stuff. But then yeah, dealing with those tapes, you had to have clean time code. And what time code is, you get a tape and it's blank. There's nothing on that tape. And you lay time code down, which was the, you know, uh, down to, I believe it was a hundredth of a second all the way through. So you needed to have post roll and pre roll. If there was, if I had to start at, let's say the 10 seconds mark, I, I'd had to have, it's starting from whatever, nine uh, seconds and however many frames. And this is kind of some technical stuff that most people wouldn't even know about today, but there was some uh, issues there. And then the cameras would get dirty. We were shooting hunts in Montana and the dust in the air um, out there would uh, clog these cameras. And that was even with using covers. When we spent $250 on a custom cover for those XL1s, which at the time was a lot of money. And, it was well worth it. I could film in a downpour with that stuff. And, but no, yeah, a lot of the technical and that type of deal with these cameras and all that was very difficult. We sent the cameras in to be cleaned once a year. Um, after we had two, we ended up getting, um, like two cameras and then getting a wide angle lens was also a big deal and not a wide angle lens. Like you think where I, you know, a lender lens, I'm not talking about that, but uh, something where, I mean, you could be in a boat and get more coverage. I could be closer to that guy to get that better audio because there were times where we could not use the wireless. And um, I could be closer to the guy. That was one of the things about a wide-angle lens was being closer to him. And that's something that I, I take into right now. I'm filming interviews at the National Walleye Tour. I use a wide-angle lens because I, I, I can get away with a shotgun mic. Because I'm I'm only uh, you know two feet from the guy versus five feet from the guy, I get that better audio for some of that. But there was a lot of that stuff you had to think about. That you know, like my nephew is um, he's uh, filming for a bunch of outfitters now in Saskatchewan and Wyoming and uh, Texas um, and all that. And there, he has no clue what I'm talking about with any of this stuff. He just says, you know, cut up, old man, that kind of thing. But no, there was a lot of different things there. That editing, that editing was. Uh, I didn't want to talk about it because I started having flashbacks and a little anxiety attack. But, um, and then to put that out with those uh, commercial breaks and all that stuff had to be timed perfectly. Yeah, so it's a different world now when you're doing that stuff. Uh, YouTube doesn't care. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember those days as well, Jason. And dealing with mini DV tapes, you know, okay, you <laughs> let that run that whole time and then... Do you rewind it? Do you trust that there wasn't a water drop or like you said, dust? Do you rewind it and reuse that tape? And then, you know, the crazy part about it was after the fact, you had to go through all of those tapes. There was like no high-speed scrubbing like you can do today with video. So right, it was time-consuming. Yes, that, that, you know, rolling back and forth on tape, incredibly time-consuming. You're praying that, uh, that the camera doesn't eat the tape. Um, I don't think we ever really had any problems with that, but, um, yeah, that whole thing. And then I remember, I think we were in Bemidji and you showed me, I think you had a Panasonic and you're showing me these SD cars. You're like, yeah, it's a hot foot. You can, if one fills, it goes to the next. I'm like, what is this? I'm like, this is crazy. Um, this is, and then, yeah, I can go back and I, I filmed for five minutes and there was nothing on that five minute clip. I can delete it right away. And that was mind boggling to me. I had no idea what to think about that, but. Yeah, that was a good camera setup. It definitely uh, improved a lot of the game, that's for sure. But, yeah, I, you know, the other side to it is the technical side. You know, I'm not a videographer by any means. The technical side kind of gets to be challenging as well. And, you know, the, the GoPros, I mean, look at what an iPhone can do today. You know, it's just mind-boggling what we have at our fingertips. And, of course, that's the explosion of all the different videos that we're seeing out there. Yeah, that's what happens sometimes when you get, uh, there's so much stuff out there for anything. I mean, you go on YouTube, you know, I was running a bar two years ago for a buddy of mine. I, I hated the bar business, got out of it, went back to working with the family construction thing. But 
we got all these big screen TVs, and if there was nothing on as far as sports, I I could pull up a, a YouTube channel with snowmobile. I got another one with ice fishing, just you know whatever's going on with the season, and but the amount of junk you end up having, and there's some great ones, you know that Tom Bowley uh, and you know Eric Hadia, you know guys that I think and don't like Hadia, but man, you want to have some informational if you want to go learn how to fish steelhead. On, on Lake Michigan uh, uh, down by wherever, uh, Sheboygan, Milwaukee. I mean, you can go on and find these videos and just educate yourself. I, I fixed my dad's flat screen TV. I took it apart and fixed it from a YouTube video. And it just, it changed so much where there's so much out there. But uh, sometimes with anything, when you get that much stuff out there, you really got to weed through the stuff that, and it's a personal thing. I don't find it interesting. And someone else might. You know, like the hunting public, that's the only hunting show I watch. I don't watch much hunting and fishing stuff. It's, you know, the uh, Uncut Angling guys were great when they had their thing going, very entertaining and educational. I, cause I, I like to try to learn something when I watch them, and I realize the bad fish videos were not maybe educational in that sense, but then other people argued that, yeah, I just want to, I watch the juicy work of Medusa or um, whatever, and I learn how to do that, even though it was more of the quote musky porn yeah you know jason it, it is kind of wild i mean there's two different styles to this whole filming thing and uh, you know how in depth do you get how technical do you get as far as what you're actually doing i don't know there's two two ways to argue that i guess you know i, I look back at some of the bad fish stuff and and realize that uh, i learned some different tactics throughout viewing those different videos that you had made so Maybe you didn't talk about it, but you can visually see it, kind of like you said, that the, the one person that you discussed that with. It's a challenge. There's definitely a challenge. How much content do you put out that's all technical, and how much of it is that, I guess, in a sense, musky porn, if you will. I don't know. I don't know what that mix truly, truly is. It, it gets tougher um, as you go along, and you try to figure out where that is. Well, that's it. It's all about hitting that happy medium. I mean, anything you do, it's a lot of times when you're making it, you don't know. You go back and look at it. It's like, yeah, I mean, I look back at a lot of our stuff and cringe. I'm like, what was I thinking as an editor? This is terrible. I'm like, why did I leave that in? I saw him do this. Why did I tell him I could have taken 10 seconds and had them explain something? And obviously, that's like anything. You know, you said, your hindsight quote, whatever. But yeah, I mean, hit that happy medium sometimes. You're just walk or if you've done enough of this stuff where you kind of know, you can kind of have a feel for it. But it's a never-ending. But like I said, I haven't I haven't watched our videos in a long time. I should go back and uh, watch. I, I like watching our hunting videos more. You know, I go back to that first episode that we, or that first tape we shot. I did a Wyoming hunt, and we uh, did some mule deer hunting in uh, Montana and some duck hunting. And that's my favorite stuff. That's how we say, if, if you want to go to a, anybody listening, if, if you want to go to a muskie show and talk to one of these muskie guys, I mean, uh, Dick Pearson and Bill Sand aren't there anymore, but you got guys like Brad Hoppy. Go talk to him about hunting. You'll get a much better um, audience if you go talk to him about, you know, maybe hook him up with some whitetail hunting or something out in Wyoming and Nebraska. You know, talking about that, you know, the, the balance between, you know, like you said, musky porn and education. I think when you guys were doing your thing, though, musky fishing was still, it was still very secretive, I feel. Like, I don't think it was you know, quite to the same level that it is today, obviously, you know, with, you know, all the YouTube videos and the podcasts and, and everything that's out there now, it, the learning curve as a muskie angler is a lot shorter. But back in the day when you guys were shooting a lot of that video, I guess I, I would have never faulted you for it because of the fact that I just didn't think it was, it was like, it was quite, it was quite the same. It was like this weird secret society kind of thing. And you had to pretty much try to figure out most of your stuff on your own. Yes. And we did. We got lucky with our timing. I mean, we, Ty Sennett, Tanner Wilds, Brad Hoppy, Craig Thomas, Chad Kane, Mike Albert, Kevin Cochran, Mark Lajewski, Jordy Ostrider. Who am I leaving out? I'm forgetting somebody I know. But my God, it's like you um, watch those guys when they're in their 20s and nobody had really, yeah, it was something that was very unique. And it was, the timing was luck. I mean, don't get me wrong, but my God, that was fun. The shenanigans that accompanied it, but no, that was something that people hadn't seen, but it, it, it gave you that broad look, you know, that, I mean, some of that stuff I shot with Chad down in Illinois with the tornadoes coming in and all that was, 
I mean, fantastic. And, and, and then, then we followed up with him on Leech Lake, which we caught a lot of grief for that uh, segment in a way of, of, I tell you off the air, but, uh, there was some stuff, but yeah, just catching that at the right timing and to put those guys on. And we didn't worry about any kind of balance between information and it was just film what happened, you know, uh, Luke and Greg at night on Malax and that conversation that's going on about did they uh, want to kiss the fish and they're like, well, I haven't kissed any, any chicks in a while. May as well uh, kiss the fish. You know, that whole thing with that, just, I mean, I'm, I'm just that lifestyle with, uh, I wish I'd had more uh, footage of, of, of Greg destroying stuff. We never got that on film, but a lot of fun, a lot of fun. And uh, I think the viewers kind of related to that too. So Jason, are, you know, how can somebody actually go back and watch some of this bad fish stuff? Is there still videos out there for sale or have they been posted on YouTube? I mean, what's, what's the best way for somebody to get out there and see it? I've got stacked to DVDs. If anybody wants some, get on Facebook, find me on Facebook, and I'll uh, send you a, a stack of DVDs for basically the cost of postage. You know, I mean, I'll uh, send you the whole thing for the whole library of five DVDs for uh, 20 bucks. You know, I mean, I'm just looking to get rid of them. I'm trying to get them loaded up on uh, YouTube. I just haven't put the time into doing that. But I got stacked to DVDs. If anybody wants any, let me know and I can get them to you definitely worthwhile go check that stuff out it's it you know it's all part of musky fishing history in my opinion at this point like the stuff that you see on youtube today i don't feel is uh groundbreaking and in, in changing the way musky fishing is viewed and i i feel like that's what something you guys did like i said i hate to pat myself on the back but i think our stuff had some soul to it i think there was some that that there was some uh, personality there and not to say that anything now isn't but I see stuff that's contrived and fake and all of that. And I, I thought our, self, our stuff really had some reality and it wasn't produced to make a sponsor happy, which is another reason that we didn't make any money. But it was, you know, these guys, a lot of this stuff would have been the exact same if there had been no camera there. The exact same thing would have happened. And I don't think you can say that for uh, some of the stuff that, is put out um, today, but I really thought we had some soul to our stuff, and um, and like I said, that's uh, extremely biased, but that's the way I feel. And uh, you know, and I would like to come back and do a musky town too. I'd talk to some people about that, and where are they now? You know, one of those things like the VH1 behind the music thing. You know, where are they now? And I think that'd be fun, you know. But I told them I'm like, we're gonna have to have to get some funding for this because I'm certainly not donating any more time to it. Like I did the first time around. I'm, that's I'm done with that. <laughs> musky town too. That'd be uh like I said, that's one of my favorites. I, I like that one. I like all the other ones too. I like musky madness, you know, and I, I like musky town. It's just had a different feel and uh, more of the behind the scenes kind of, like you said, and if you, if you did have, where are they now? I mean, it'd be amazing. You know, we'll speak of where are they now. You know, you mentioned Chad Kane, and we've talked about him on the podcast, and Brad and I public, or privately have talked about, you know, looking him up to see if he'd want to come talk. Is he, you know, what's his story? Are you still in touch with him at all or not? Yeah, you know, uh, I had him on my show maybe that was a year and a half ago, and, you know, he's up here, and um, we don't talk on a regular basis, but, you know, I'm, he'd probably be willing to. And it's one of those guys that you, you should do a podcast with him because you want to hear about a guy whose life, you know, with the daughters and now he's ice fishing with his daughters and all of that stuff. And it's kind of a real change as far as going from one of the, you know, uh, biggest names in musky fishing and all that was writing for the magazines and all that kind of thing. And, you know, he's still, I mean, he's uh, doing great. Uh, good guy. I mean, interesting path that he, that, that he's been on. Yeah. Uh, good guy doing well, doing well. So you should, I would keep uh, harping on him. Maybe he can get on there or on here with you. Yeah, definitely somebody we won't we'd want to talk about or talk to. That's one of it. <laughs> I always think about your when I think of Chad Kane. The one thing I think about is one of your videos, and I I may have been Musky Town where you guys are trolling. I believe it is, and he talks about how at night he took out part of a buoy so that he could run his line over the top of the buoy or something right. something like that. Is like. Like you said, the cast of characters that you guys had back in the day was something else, and you know to see some of them move on from musky fishing is is odd because of like you said, Chad Kane. I mean, if if you were in musky fishing 15 years ago, everybody knew who Chad Kane was. Yep, yeah. I'm, I mean, he was the headliner on a Saturday at a sports show. I mean, he was the guy. It was funny. We're at 
the Chicago show one time and the Packers were playing the Bears. And, and uh, that was one of those timing things. I mean, my God, you want to talk about this old the culture of uh, the Muskie shows and everything that surrounded it. But with the Chicago show always fell on wild card weekend. And the Bears were playing the Packers during Chad's seminar. And Chad was, we were trying to hook it up where we could play the Bears-Packers game while his seminar was going on because he's like, I'll pack the place. So we were trying to get the TV feed to show the game muted while he was doing his seminar. We couldn't figure it out or it didn't work. We couldn't, I mean, we figured out how to show NASCAR at this one show in Milwaukee. And they, they actually, they threw me and Gordy out of that one because we did it. And yeah, that was a long time ago. That was a blizzard. That was during, that was when, that was 2003. That was the Valentine's day weekend. There was an ice storm and yeah. uh, All right. I'm I'm, I'm getting sidetracked, but all right. I lost my train of thought back to you. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. All right, Jason, let's shift gears here a little bit. You know, so you've been musky fishing up in northern Wisconsin for well over 20 years, and obviously things have changed. You've seen a lot of it. You've been part of a lot of it. You know, where do you think musky fishing in northern Wisconsin is today versus, you know, where it was when when uh, you guys were filming? I think we've seen some changes. Uh, like I said earlier, you know, the global warming thing has become a political thing or a climate change, but we have seen changes to these lakes. Not all of it is uh, weather related. A lot of it is shoreline development and um, lawn fertilizers and uh, some stuff like that. The uh, cleaning up of the shorelines has kind of turned it more into a bass fishery. It's more uh, friendly to bass than it is to walleyes and muskies. Uh, The uh, muskie fishing is still very good. I believe what we're seeing, we're almost seeing better average sizes and less numbers in a lot of the places I fish. Um, We're not seeing the suspended fish, as I mentioned earlier. There's there, uh, there's still, I mean, that mud flat bite in June, which is um, insect related of all things. People may not think that muskies can relate to insect patches, but it puts every other fish in the system on a mud flat and then the muskies will follow. But, uh, yeah, we're doing well and it's just changed. I mean, everything changes and I do think we're seeing damage to these uh, fishes, uh, spawning habitats and obviously habitat for anything, be it, a a deer or grouse or whatever is more impactful than, than angling, um, or hunting, uh, that kind of thing. And what we're seeing is the change in, in, in that habitat, which isn't, uh, isn't that great. Um, but I mean, there's uh, plenty of lakes, obviously still you get on where they're state owned, they're natural shorelines, uh, where you can get out. And yeah, uh, we just basically are uh, musky fishing now. I've, I don't want to say evolved, but uh, we've come to the thing where we fish for what the best bite is at the time. And, you know, you got that late June full moon, you're going to go musky fishing. But it's early June and it's uh, sunny and whatnot. We're going to go and uh, catch a bunch of big, uh, large mouth and small mouth. You know, early, earlier June, we're on, on the big crappies. So we kind of follow whatever's going. But yeah, for the muskies, I mean, this is a musky podcast, obviously. We kind of just focus on a weather front or a moon phase now. You know, let's talk about your, your day-to-day thing. Are you on the water pretty much every day during the summer? No, uh, I wish. I mean, we do have uh, several, I mean, we'll go fish for an hour uh, uh, several times throughout the week, especially that early summer. Is my, it's always been my favorite for muskies in northern Wisconsin, that June bite. Um, you know, uh, people say fall, uh, this and that, but man, that June bite is insane. And uh, now they've opened up, I believe, I think it opens this year, and I'm sorry if I'm wrong, or correct me if I'm wrong, anybody out there, but they're going to open muskies in May for catch and release only, where muskie season officially opens Memorial Day. Yeah, that early part of the year, the May and June, we fish a lot, you know, four days a week, five days a week, and then middle of summer, the dog days, not so much. And then early fall, then again, leading us into hunting season, uh, September, we're on the, on the water um, quite a bit. I think you're actually right about that, but I'm not positive about that early that early season catch and release. I remember them voting on it, but sometimes when they right. vote things in, you know how Wisconsin is. Sometimes we're a little, uh, I don't know. It, it the process takes a little longer than I that well, I feel. I believe like it, it did pass. Yes, I believe it did pass the spring hearings, and technically, I think it opens, but you'll have to read your when the regulations are released in April. Wisconsin anglers will have to read up on that. 
Well, let's talk about some. You said that, so some of that spawning habitat isn't as desirable as it once was or isn't even available as it, as it used to be. What's your thoughts on this catch and release early season? Do you feel this is a good thing? You don't, it doesn't matter. You know, what's your thoughts on it? And I'm not trying to start stuff with you because I don't, I mean, your opinion is whatever. In my opinion, mm -hmm. I kind of think that, you know, if the spawning is declining, then maybe we should leave them alone during that time of year. But I don't know how much that impacts it at all. I mean, you hear yeah. talk about yeah, spawning fish don't bite. So, you know, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, it's a hot button topic for sure. And my opinion, if I could push a button, I would say that keep it closed until Memorial Day. Now, the reality of it is they can't enforce a closed musky season on the same water that there's an open northern pike season you cannot enforce that kind of thing i mean what would you go throw for muskies in may you throw a jig and a red tail you show um throw a jig and a sucker you throw a, a bass sized spinnerbait you throw a husky jerk that's what you would throw in may well guess what i'm throwing in may right now when i'm walleye fishing everything i just said so i honestly think you know, and, and I had uh, people tell me, well, now people are going to be going in and snagging them. And I'm like, well, so this regulation is going to create violators? I would think that those type of people with that type of mentality are already doing that. I, I think it's a, a big nothing burger, but I mean, I would rather it be not open. But I mean, you can't enforce. I mean, you tell me that, okay, pike are open on this body of water, but muskies aren't. How do you enforce someone targeting muskies? I just don't understand. I, I, I don't know how you do that. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I can say that's probably a logical explanation to it. Like you said, I don't, I don't feel like it's going to create people going out and, and trying to intentionally do things they shouldn't do to these fish. So, I, I can see your point there definitely. But I'm like, like you, you know, I was kind of like, well, if it's not broke, what are we fixing, right? But I mean, at the same point, exactly. I don't, I yep. don't know that it's going to decimate the muskie populations either. Well, um, when I was guiding walleyes in May, uh, back when I was in high school and just out of high school, you know, I was catching a dozen to 15, 16 muskies in the, in, in the month of May, uh, jigging walleye. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I never caught a fish over 40 inches. You know, I mean, you're catching these uh, little males here and there. So I don't, you know, I just don't know some of the stuff. I Sometimes I think that um, uh, muskie anglers can they almost seem like they um, um, want to argue themselves out of a sport with uh, some of the stuff. I think there's other things that people could be focusing on than uh, somebody trying to catch a muskie in May and release it out of cold water. You know, same guys that probably complaining about it, you know, they're out there in August every day, you know, uh, telling which fish has a better chance of surviving being caught. But yeah, and I'll get beat up over saying that. I, I feel like your your thought process there is fair, you know. I think. Yeah, and I don't want a bunch of muskies to be killed. That's the, I mean, that's what I want. I mean, it's a low density, more so now than ever, you know. And I think, too, that I think throughout the course of the year, the open water, open season for muskies, I think more muskies are dying, delayed mortality than people think. And I hope I'm wrong, but I, and now there's more muskies being caught because, as we talked about earlier, all this information that people can kind of learn how to do this and uh brad i'd like your um, opinion on this do you think more um, uh, muskies die delayed mortality than we think or not that's a loaded question jason i i think that uh i think that there's a lot of new people in the sport and i'm not blaming them by any means but i think uh it's our job as musky anglers to educate and hopefully um try to find that balance where we can get the angler to know exactly how to handle the fish. That's one of the biggest keys to answer your question about delayed mortality. Unfortunately, I, I think there's probably more than we really know. And, and I think Mille Lacs is a prime example of some of that as well. You know, that, that might've been based off of both handling as well as water temps and so on and so forth. These fish are fragile, you know, and, uh, I hate to see any of them die, but uh, it happens. You know, if you fish them long enough, it's going to happen to you. And unfortunately, I, I, it sucks. It just plain, plain sucks. I, I don't know what else to say. The amount of time you spend with a fish in your hands, in that bag, the stress, especially it's the bigger fish. And the bigger fish definitely seem to be more affected by it than the small ones. So 
definitely something to be concerned about. Well, and I didn't mean to throw a loaded question at you. I guess my angle was that not people are mishandling more than, and and with new anglers, you're going to see that. I think these fish might be more fragile than what we thought. I guess that was my angle on, on, on this was that, uh, I think that with the information and, and everything and the, and the tackle now and everything with this, then we can go into the forward facing sonar at some point if you'd like to. But, uh, some of this stuff where I think the fish might be more fragile than we think, because I think that's one of the reasons, another one with the habitat loss here that maybe the more fish that are being caught, you increase the fish caught by 40%. What does that add to that uh, delayed mortality? And it's uh, maybe not all on the anglers, maybe just that this fish is, I mean, you get a fish that fights, I mean, I've caught 45 inches that I thought were a world record, and that fish was very difficult to release. And then it it did release. And now looking back, you know, 15 years ago, I'm saying, uh, I don't, that fish probably died. I don't know. And not trying to be pessimistic here. I mean, that's not what I'm trying to do, and then take this and, and test sounds like what I'm trying to do, but it's not, but it just makes me wonder sometimes when you think about stuff and I got to stop thinking about stuff maybe. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know what you're saying, Jason. And it, it's, it's scary, right? I mean, right. you could take it to such extremes and I think, uh, we've seen some different people take, take it to the extreme. Well, you can't fish during this time of the year. We can't do this. Don't put them right. in a bag. Make sure you release them without putting them in a bag. Really? You yeah. know, forget the photo um but it's supposed to still be fun too and and that's troublesome as well i mean how do you balance all of that out i don't know what the right answers are but i do know the less we handle them the more care we put towards those fish the better our resources and it's obvious i mean if you think about catch and release i mean you can talk to some of these old timers and they'll tell you straight out you know when they were killing the fish kind of like when we first started talking about this today guys were killing fish back in the day and and you're not seeing that anymore is it a habitat change is it weather who knows what it might be but i definitely think that as musky anglers we all have to be concerned about those topics i guess is the best way to put it well absolutely well how are the numbers looking over by you in in miltona compared to 10 years ago uh there's (laughs) a huge difference we definitely had more fish back in the day and a lot better, bigger fish, I should say, as well. It's definitely changed. And and I think some of that here in the state of Minnesota, and, and I'm no biologist by any means, but my personal opinion would be that, you know, Vermilion and, and Mille Lacs took the hindrance, you know, they, they got pounded. And without those being the fisheries that they once were, it's put more pressure on some of the smaller lakes throughout the state. So. Right. That definitely has made a big impact, in my opinion. Yeah, we've just seen this, and I mean, and that's over here too. And I just, like I said, with this, I just worry about the delayed mortality um, with some of these. And you tell someone, "Hey, don't go fishing in August." You can't do that. How are you going to solve? Uh, I mean, some, uh, solve this stuff. It's like if there's more more fish being caught, more delayed mortality, less stocking. Yeah, that number is going to go down. And so, do you stock more? Is that the answer? I don't know, with some of our best musky systems up here, the shorelines have been cleaned so much where there's not a tree in the water. And they did a big study up here on that. Uh, well, I won't go into it, but boy, if you had a state-owned lake with uh, trees in the water, the fish really thrived on a higher level. All right, Jason, you spent a lot of time on the water. You fished with a, a whole cast of characters. You got to have some sort of story that you can end the show on. Okay, uh uh, one time, okay, we can involve Brad in one. So I, I pulled in over there, and this is when he didn't have his big shop. This is when he was just in a little sh- our shop. I pulled in, and Mike Keys had just got done filming with him, and they're making pizzas inside. And this was back when I would uh, smoke the occasional uh, cigar. I've given that up now for a while, but I'm outside, and uh, Greg pulled in, and he was a little bit upset. And uh, I was like, "You got to come inside." We got uh, pizzas going. He was upset because his big fish in the day was 47, and Luke had called him and said he had a 48, so Greg was pretty upset about that. And, uh, like, you got to come inside. He's like, I ah, know I don't really talk to anybody. Can you go in and get the keys of the house from Brad? I just want to go and go to sleep. So, like, all right, so I go inside. I'm like, yeah. 
maybe your keys to the house, whatever. I walk back outside and uh, Greg's vehicles are peeling out of the out of the driveway and okay. And then so anyway, find out he went back out in a car to fifty two. And I'm like, Well, why'd you do that? You got clients tomorrow. Should have left that fish alone. But that was how focused Greg was and how the pride that he took in that kind of thing and um yeah, he didn't want to come inside of a pizza. He had to go and catch that big fish. So that's probably not the best story to end on. That didn't come out as good as I thought. Damn it. You got to come up with another one. Uh, Brad, help me out. Brad, well, help me. That, that story isn't all that bad, though, Jason. I, I can tell you, honestly, I have watched him do it numerous times, right? He, uh, if his day, it, it could have been, he caught six fish today. But guess what? I caught a 53 in my boat. Maybe it wasn't me. Maybe it was a client, whatever. He would not leave the water. He might drop his clients off and go right back out and keep fishing. Even though he got six fish for the day, somebody got one bigger, he was going right back out. I mean, I'll yeah. tell you what, he was one dedicated, he still is a dedicated person to the fish. And, uh, man, he, he does not rest until <laughs> he feels that he succe- succeeded, I guess. Yeah, that was, uh, I couldn't figure it out. I, you know, just uh, different uh, thought patterns or whatever. It was, yeah, um, as I had, uh, the Mark got a 48 today. I got a 47. Yeah, let's go have some beers. Done, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That would be normal. Um, I'm going to say Greg isn't quite normal. That's, That's a good, easy way to put it, right? All right, Jason. I want to thank you for coming out and talking musky fishing with us. You know it's been uh, good. We have, many of us have enjoyed your videos over the year, and it's you know, good to get some of the stories behind the video. Hopefully, someday we'll uh, get that musky town too that you talked about. So, Jason, I want to thank you for that, and we want to thank our listeners for putting up with us for another episode. And we'll see everybody again next week. Hey, thanks a lot for having me, guys. This was fun. 